Well, good evening. I hope all is well. I'm excited that I get to spend my evening with you tonight. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was going to use an illustration and then an illustration about how I'm an old fogey when it comes to technology. Um, And then in the midst of preparing for this sermon, I outdid that illustration with the one from today. So uh, as you can see, I have an iPad up here. I typically don't preach um, with it, but today I am. And, and, and as I was going over my sermon manuscript uh, today on the iPad, and then I was flipping to apps, to, to my Bible app, so I could read the passage, then flip back over to my notes and practice through. And I thought, man, there's got to be a way to uh, split screen this. Like, I've got to be able to split the screen so I can have my Bible app here and my notes over here and, and kind of together without having to do this stupid jumping back and forth. And so I Googled it and I figured out you can. I thought I was sharing a screen. It's called split screen. And so I like figured it out. (coughs) Excuse me. And I take a picture and I send it to my best friend in Texas. And I'm like, hey man, check this out. Did you know that you can split screen on an iPad? And he sends back dot, 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 you're old. I was like, man, I thought I'd struck gold. I thought I was the only one that came up with this. You know, Apple made this for me. And and I laughed because I was going to tell a time uh, in college when I'm using my phone. And and one of my buddies is like, why don't you just do this instead? It's way easier. And I was like, wow. I had no clue that my phone was capable of doing that. Thank you. You have forever saved time in my life. And, And so I laugh about that. And I think that that's probably true for most of us in the room, that whatever technology you use on your computer or on your phone, um, that technology is beyond what we can comprehend and we're constantly learning new tricks of the trade. What that reminded me of was my salvation. Is that, or in the illustration of that, is that I've now been a Christian for a little over a decade And daily, weekly, monthly, every year, I'm learning that it goes deeper than I already thought it could. Every year, I grow even closer to Christ. Every year, I realize my salvation's even more important than it was to me the year before. And so I believe that that is the case for so many of us is that as we walk through life following Christ, we oftentimes recognize there's still so much more to know. And so as we turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to mine the depths of the riches of salvation. All right, we're going to go deep and we're going to bring out some beautiful truths from the scriptures about our salvation. And so if you would join me in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Now, if you're, if you're here and maybe you uh, had a late day at work and you forgot your Bible, great. They're on the inside of your rows. We want you to have that so you can read along. Also, if you're here tonight and you do not have a Bible and you would like one, that's our gift to you. We want you to know that we believe every single syllable inside the Word of God and we base our life and our church life on it. And so that's our gift to you so that you can have God's Word with you and take it home with you as well. So join me as we read and Uh, Typically what I do is I read the entire passage and then we go walk through it, okay? But to save time for today because we're covering 12 verses, I'm going to read a few 
teach, read a few, teach, read a few, teach. Okay, so just there's four points. So you can kind of gauge and prepare your mind. We've got four points to discuss tonight. Uh, so let's, let's begin in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Again, we, we, we discussed last week the overview of First Peter. If you weren't here for that, I really highly suggest you go on our Facebook page and watch that overview sermon because it explains a lot of the context of what's going on here. But, uh, it, but we, we start out and it says, to the elect ex or to the exiles dispersed abroad in Pontius. So we talked last week about how that's Asia Minor. Now we have a photo today and you've got to bring your binoculars to see it, but... Okay, you see how the water kind of comes in from the left, right? Okay, well, where the water stops and there's a wall, that's like Jerusalem and in all of that area, okay? That's where these Christians originally were. And then throughout the years, throughout time, there was persecution because of their faith, and they all went north. I'm not saying all of them, but these ones that he's writing to went north. And now uh, Gage back there did an awesome little bracket of red around Asia Minor. So there's several cities around in that red box that you see behind me. That's Asia Minor. If you're a history nerd or geography nerd and, and you just wanted to see the picture, that's where they're located, okay? So they were in Jerusalem and in those areas and throughout persecution, they all went up, these believers went up north and they're spread out across Asia Minor. So there's just a visual for that. And then <clears throat> again, he begins and he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, right here is, is a very clear biblical example of what we doctrinally call the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is the word that we use to express that our God is one God expressed in three distinct persons, okay? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is all three of those, but they are also distinct. So the Father is not the Son or the Spirit, the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Okay? I get it. For 2,000 years now, the church has tried to come up with illustrations like, okay, well, it's, it's like water. Water can be water, it can be ice, and it can be vapor, but it can't be all at the same time. So guess what? That's a heresy because it's misrepresenting the truth of God. Well, it's like an eggshell. There's a yolk, there's the little weird stuff, and then there's the shell, but it's not all at the same time. And so Christians, for 2,000 years, we've been trying to find some sort of illustration or example that makes the Trinity make perfect sense to everyone and to a six-year-old, okay? Guess what? We failed. It's best if we just admit <laughs> that the Trinity is clearly seen in Scripture. It is essential for salvation. We must believe that there is one God. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But here we see 
through the Father, the God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and my obedience being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. We see Father, Spirit, and Son. We see three distinct persons, but we still know it's the same one God. Friends, it will blow your mind and it will make you stay up late at night to try and understand the Trinity. Like I said, I wish I could come up with something that made it perfectly make sense, but it is best believed as a truth of Scripture that is clearly seen and hard to express and to understand. Okay? As we move on into verse 3. See, I said we had four points. I guess we've already covered two, but those weren't the ones for tonight. Okay? I didn't want to say we had six points, but you got a couple tangent points. But in verse 3, as we continue on, Peter writes, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, our salvation is a gracious gift from God. This passage starts out, blessed be God because of his great mercy and that he's given us new birth, right? He gave us salvation. This passage is making a very bold declaration. Friends, listen, church, listen. Your salvation would not have happened had God not intervened. That is so clear in this passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and his great mercy. He's given us new birth. Your salvation, our salvation would not have taken place without the intervention of God. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, uh, he hits on this. So we're going to preach through this passage in a few weeks, but we're going to use it tonight. And Peter writes, he says in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is so clear in this passage that our salvation is a gracious gift from God. Now don't run with that too far, okay? Yes, we had to make the conscious decision to repent of our sins and follow Jesus Christ. But here's where I want to emphasize that this was a gift. The only reason that you made that conscious decision to follow Christ is that you were living in spiritual darkness and God turned on the lights. You were living in spiritual blindness and God gave you sight. You were living in spiritual death and God brought you to life. Your salvation, our salvation is a gracious gift from God. It is only by his grace that the lights came on and we saw our sin for what it was, was blasphemy against a holy and good God that loves us. And we saw our sin and we turned and we ran to Jesus Christ and we found comfort and hope and life in his arms. Church, may we not forget that our salvation is a gracious gift from God. <clears throat> Maybe you're here tonight and you're exploring this whole Christ and Christianity thing. You've got questions about it. Great. Welcome. I want you here. I want you asking questions about God here. 
So I have a question for you to consider. If God had graciously given you a gift and made a way for you to have a purpose-filled life in him, would you want to know about that gift? As we move on into verses four and five, we'll read, it says that uh, we were given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's verse three, verse four. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse three made the very clear point that our salvation is a gracious gift from God and now these two verses have made it clear our salvation is secure in Christ. Our salvation is secure in Christ. What's amazing about the security of this is, is remember the context of who he's writing to, okay? These people have fled for their lives. And he says, you have been born into an inheritance that is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is kept in heaven for us, and we are being guarded by God until the end when we inherit this great salvation. It says, until the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, what does that mean? That means that when, when you die and you go to see Jesus face to face in eternity, or if you're still alive and Jesus is decides to have his second coming and he comes back at either point. That, that's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again, remembering who this was written to, these people had left their homes, they have fled, uh, and so they, they left their homes because they had to leave, they lost their jobs because they had to leave, and life as they knew it was never the same because they had to flee to this area so that they were not killed or beaten or, or any of those types of persecution. And see, in, in our world of security cameras and, and the little video doorbells and, um, and gun safes, and, and still, I'd say, in America, and with our world of religious freedom and dead-bolted front doors, we live in a facade of permanence and safety. It's not real. I would say for the vast majority of us in this room, there, there are some of you, I don't want to be rude or unsensitive, there are people in this room who have had tragic things happen to you. I'm, I'm not negating that. But for the vast majority of us in this room and for the vast majority of people in Wyoming and in our country, we live relatively safe lives where our stuff hasn't been taken, our lives haven't been threatened, and we really haven't had much things taken from us. Very different than the life of those that Peter is writing to. But it is a facade, it's fake. It's a fake view of permanence and safety. And sadly, it's the loss of loved ones or shocking times when our homes really are broken into or someone running a red light and the horrifying tragic crash that takes place because of that. It's that that gives us the shocking realization that life and our possessions are insanely fragile and can be gone in the blink of an eye. Church, let us hear the word of the Lord. The only thing secure in your life is your salvation in Christ. That is all we have. 
Can you imagine how comforting of a word that was to those who had to flee everything? They possessed nothing. And when they read this letter, they were reminded that the only thing they still had is the only thing that is necessary. And that is a secure salvation in Christ. Church, if this is the only thing that is secure in this life and the next, it should deserve our highest priority. Now, honest moment, I have two children right now. I hope we have about seven more. Just kidding. My, I just got my wife to look up, though. Not that she wasn't paying attention. That just really got her to look up. We have two children right now. Her, our daughter's name is Ava Grace, and my son's name is Michael Tyler. And, and I desperately want them to be phenomenal hunters. I, I kid you not. I want them to shoot the biggest animals in all of Wyoming. I want them to win records, okay? I, I hope to have lots and lots of memories in the field with my son and with my daughter. That is a huge part of my life, and I hope it's a huge part of theirs. I was on the phone talking about that uh, with a friend the other day. And through that conversation, it dawned on me just how meaningless that ultimately is. We're still going to hunt, okay? But I had to put it in perspective that if my daughter can shoot a bow better than any man in Wyoming, what does that mean if she doesn't know Jesus? If my son shoots the largest moose that's ever been recorded in Wyoming, what does that matter if he dies and goes to hell? Because our salvation is the only thing secure, it reminded me that as a father, my purpose is to teach my children to fear God and to obey his commands. That the greatest accomplishment I could ever do is to raise my children in a home and to read scripture with them and to sing praise with them and to live a life that honors Jesus Christ so that I hope that they would make the choice that they want to follow him as well. Because in this life, it doesn't matter what my kids accomplish, if they die and go to hell, what was it worth? And that dawned on me, what, what are my accomplishments? The greatest accomplishment, men, that you can do in your life is to fear God and obey his commands. And the greatest thing you can do with your life, ladies, is to, to fear God and obey his commands. If salvation is secure in Christ and it's the only thing that lasts in this life and the next, it is the thing that which should receive the highest priority of our lives, investing into our faith in God. Another thing I want to say before we move on to the next passages is that in, in, our, in our state, we have some predominant religious beliefs that it's a works-based salvation. You got to do these things and you get to go to heaven. Or if you stop doing these things, you don't get to go to heaven. Let me just encourage you, friend. If you have trusted in the risen King Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, you have been forgiven and you've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment on your life as to what is to come. And let me just tell you, nothing is more powerful than God. And so in verse five, it says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. So let me say, 
Someone may say they're a Christian, turn and walk away from Christ for the rest of their lives. My argument is not that they lost their salvation, it's that they were never saved in the first place. Because friend, if you can give your life to Christ, your sins are forgiven, the Holy Spirit is given to you, God is guarding you, you will not lose. There will be times in your life where you struggle with sin more than others, but you will be victorious in Christ because Christ is the victor. I just hate that we have religions that tell you you gotta do these things to get to heaven when Christ has done everything for you. All he says is follow me. As we move on, we look into verses six through nine and it says, you rejoice in this. So we just talked about we were given salvation, that salvation it can't be taken, it's secure in Christ. Verse six, you rejoice in this even though now for a short time if Necessary, that's key. You suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire so that your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith Faith, the salvation of your souls. So we see very clearly that our salvation is a gracious gift from God. We saw that our salvation is secure in Christ, and now we see in verses six through nine that our salvation comes with suffering that sanctifies. It's like, man, I really liked points one and two. It's a gift from God. Um, it's secure. But now you're saying that I've got to suffer? Yes. Yes, I'm not saying that, but God is. Yes, suffering is part of it. What's key is it says if necessary. It says we suffer trials if necessary. So our suffering that, that we experience is necessary for the goal of our proven character of our faith. And ultimately, our faithful suffering sanctifies us. That's a Bible word that means cleanses. So it cleanses us, it purges us of imperfections, and it makes us better. That's the whole point of the though refined by fire. He's talking about gold. That you put the gold, this precious mineral, and you, or precious thing, right? I don't, I don't know about gold. You put this gold in the fire and it refines the impurities out of it. That's what God's saying is happening in your life when you go through suffering. The end result of suffering for the Christian is that our faith is tried and true and it results in praise, glory, and honor. So I want you to think about your suffering, the worst pain you've ever experienced. God, through Peter the apostle, just promised to you that when you see him, again, it says at the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning when death, which is the doorway to take us to heaven, when death happens and you see Jesus face to face or when Jesus comes again, in that moment when you see the risen Savior, you won't ask God, why did you let this happen? That's a very real question, especially for some of you in this room. You've went through pain, you've went through suffering. 
I've even, I'm gonna ask God this when I get there. Like, why do flies exist, right? It's kind of deep. We're gonna take a breath. We're gonna, we're gonna come back, okay? No matter what pain you've been through and no matter what you think you might ask God when you get there, the Bible promises that when you see Jesus, the resurrected king's face, you won't say, God, why did you let this happen? Why did they have to go? Why did this have to take place? It says that it will result in praise, glory, and honor. You'll say, God, you are worthy to be praised. God, may all glory be yours. And God, I honor you. No amount of pain in this life if went through with Christ is purposeless. Every ounce of your pain has a purpose. Again, thinking about what this would mean to the audience. The Bible doesn't mean now what it never meant then. Okay? The Bible was not written to, to bar none. It was written to the audience of 1 Peter. It still applies to us today because it's the perfect, inspired, holy word of God. Okay, but it, what did it mean to them? It meant that amidst their persecution, amidst the loss of everything they had, they were going to be okay. Can you imagine being kicked out of your home, kicked out of your job, kicked out of this city and have to move because of your faith in Jesus? And all the while, someone writes a letter to you and says, hey, in the end, when you see Christ, you won't be mad at him for this. You're gonna praise him for what he did through it. This begs the question though, why doesn't God just make it to where there's no suffering? That's a great question. It, it, it really is a great question. In the beginning, there was no suffering. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He creates all these things. He creates Adam and Eve. There was sinless perfection they sinned. That brought death and brokenness to the world. And now you and me are born. My son is, was born, and, and I wouldn't say that on day two my son was a sinner. I would say that he had a sin nature. And what means is that when my son gets old enough, the first opportunity he gets, friends, let me promise you, the first opportunity he gets to rebel against God, he will. So did I, and so did you. We are worthy of punishment because we have rejected and rebelled against the good, holy God that created us for himself. So we say, well, well why doesn't God just do away with suffering? Unless you want to enroll in the class of Robotics 101, where every thought, action, and decision you've ever made never was yours. It was a mechanical, unloving, unlifelike, unreal, un unfair decision that was made for you by some um, crazy authoritarian in the sky that demands that you do all these things and you don't have a choice. I don't think that's the life that you'd really want. Why can't we just always do good all the time and there not be anything bad? That's called robotics, okay? That's not real. God made humanity with choice and we have chosen wrong. We say, well, what is God doing about suffering? Let me tell you, friend. He sent his son named Jesus, a perfect, sinless human being, fully God, fully man, and he died a suffering, horrible, 
terrible death on the cross for you. He was buried and he rose again from the dead, proving that he took our suffering. Even though we are worthy of that pain and that punishment, God poured it out on his son as a substitutionary atonement for our own sin. So you say, what is God doing about suffering? He's doing everything about suffering. He poured out his wrath on an innocent man in your place so that you could experience purpose for your pain. That's what God's doing about suffering. As we continue on, in verse 10 it says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. To explain what's going on there, Peter says, hey guys, the apostles, or the prophets who wrote the Old Testament, right? So we've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, Hosea. So some of these guys, these prophets, they were hearing from God. They were writing God's word down, speaking, this is the word of the Lord. And it was written and it was recorded and we have it written down, divinely inspired into the word of God, the, what we call the Bible. And he says, the people who were writing that, they knew as they were writing about a prophecy that there would be a Messiah. There was going to be a person who would suffer for the sins of the world and the, the glories that would come after that. And they were thinking, man, I just wish I knew when this was going to take place. I want to know. I want to know about it. I want to see what that would be like. So the prophets, the dudes who wrote the dadgum Bible, and then it says, and then angels long to catch a glimpse of this. These are angels, created, eternal, heavenly beings that serve alongside God day in and day out. Those people who dwell in heaven long to understand the riches and the glories of salvation for humanity. Holy smokes, that's deep. The prophets who wrote the Bible wanted to know what it would be like to see the Messiah give his life for you and make the way to eternal life. And the angels longed to catch a glimpse of what this salvation would be. Friends, our salvation should leave us in awe. It is an awe-inspiring thing to know that we have been saved by a God and we didn't deserve it. Let me give an illustration. My wife, Ashley, is my best friend. We were married in May of 2015, four years ago. Um, man, those days were so blissful. We had no kids. We had no money. <laughs> but we had no problems, okay? Just two happy-to-be little lovebirds, okay? And then we were always together. We were always having long talks. 
mean, we were always those annoying people that were talking about each other to our friends. You know, those really annoying people that are in love. Gosh. And, and yet, then, then the kids come along. Okay, we have Ava. And, and, and there's a little less time to talk. There's more responsibility. And there's more stress. And then we, we, we move ourselves to Wyoming. And then we have another kid. And, and then the church plant starts. And man, everything's kicking in, right? And, and there's less time to talk. And it becomes so easy four years into our marriage with two kids uh, to wake up and try and help with the kids somehow and then go to work and then come home, scroll on Instagram, right? And then there's more kids stuff. And then the house is, a, it's messy. It looks like a tornado went through and through every single stinking toy that we don't know why they have that many. And it's covering the floor. And then what's for dinner? And hey, do you want to watch Netflix when the kids go to bed? Okay, good night, love you, and then repeat. It gets easy. And I have to admit that at times I have lost the awe of my wife. I've seen it as a business partner just to get the day done rather than the best friend that I fell in love with. Now let me also mention, I'm not saying our kids did that. That's my sinfulness that did that. The Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord, okay? Any problems I have with my kids is because I'm a sinner, okay? And they're sinners too, or fixing to be sinners. It is so easy to have lost the awe of my wife. She's faithful. She is lovely. She's dedicated to our home. She cares for me. She's my biggest fan. And she deserves all. In year four into marriage, I am having to learn to fight to keep the awe for my wife. And let me just say as a word to the men in this room, if you're married, fight to be in awe of your wife. She deserves it. She deserves it. And wives, same to you. May all of our marriages be so. But now that's just an illustration, okay? We're talking about salvation. And, and what's crazy is that we get saved and, and we're on cloud nine. What's, what's really cool is that I'm not just preaching about this hypothetically. We've had some people give their lives to Jesus in the last few weeks here in, among our church. And they're on cloud nine. And it's awesome to watch. Right, so you get on cloud nine, my sins are forgiven, I'm gonna read the Bible, I'm gonna go to these church gatherings on Wednesday nights, I'm gonna show up for our members meetings. Then the hard times set in. Work gets crazy, life gets crazy. We've got medical problems, we've got family problems, we've got work problems. Our, our, our vision gets clouded with the cares of the world and the stress of life and we lose the awe of God who saved us from eternity in torment called hell. Church, if this is you tonight, and I admit it has been me before, fight to get the awe back. Don't quit until you have it. I'm not talking about some weird, emotional, warm, fuzzy you get. I'm talking about a real, deep-seated in the truth that you have been saved and that your life has been spared. Three reasons why we lose all of our salvation. First, we forget how sinful we are. Sorry. We forget how sinful we once were. 
Uh, Look on the screen of this passage. Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. If one of those doesn't line up with you, then I'm going to add a seventh one called lying, okay? So because of these things, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. Hello, that describes my life before Christ. Sometimes we lose the awe of God because we look at who we used to be with rose-colored glasses and we forget that the things that used to bring us joy brought Jesus to the cross. The things that brought us joy was bringing the wrath of God down on condemnation. That's the things we used to love. Things that God hated, we loved. We lose the awe of God because we forget how sinful we once were. The second reason is we forget how sinful we still are. Not an encouraging message tonight, sorry friends. (laughs) Sometimes we just kind of cut it like it is. After we're saved, we experience this this bolt of energy where we're going to pursue righteousness, right? We're going to read our Bible every day. We're going to repent of all of our sins. It's going to be great. It's going to be grand. Like I said, then the hard times come. Sometimes we start to coast because sadly we forget that we still have a sinful flesh. Our heart has been made alive. We've been changed. We're no longer the old creation. We've been new. God has changed us, but we still wrestle with an old, dying, sinful flesh that needs to be put to death and starved to death. Therefore, we forget that we are still desperately in need of God's continual grace to make us more like his son, Jesus. Third reason we lose the awe of God, or the awe of our salvation is we forget that we don't deserve salvation. This is a hard one for me because I'm arrogant. We are not essential to God's plan. I think it's Beyonce has a song, you're irreplaceable. Or you're, I don't know what it is. Dang, if I'm gonna quote Beyonce, I better do it right. I messed up. But we're replaceable in the plans of God. The scriptures say that if if people won't praise him, the rocks will cry out. God will get his glory whether you are a part of it or not. We are not essential to the plans of God. He involves us. He invites us. And so for the fact that we brought nothing to the table, when there's a negotiation of my soul, whether it's heaven or hell, I didn't bring any great gifts to God. God in his mercy without any reason of mine, he saved my soul and he saved your souls. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. May we fight for the awe of God. How do I do that? (sighs) It's a lifelong pursuit of Jesus. Stay close to the church. Stay close to the word. Stay close to seeking God through prayer and through repenting of your sins. It's not a one-day fix. It's a lifelong journey. Be faithful in it. Chapter one is is all about salvation. And as we close, I'm gonna ask uh, for my wife and I'm gonna ask for our band to come to the front and to begin to play. Chapter one is all about salvation. 
do you have it? Church, if you have salvation, if you've put your faith that Jesus, the Son of God, died, was buried, and rose again, and suffered in the place of your sins, if you believe that and you've repented of those sins, meaning turned away from who you used to be, you're going to follow Jesus. If you've done that, church, it is a gift. Let's be grateful. It's a secure salvation that can't be taken. Let us rejoice because nothing else in life is secure. It will come with suffering. May we endure and suffer well. Lastly, may we fight to keep the awe of God that he saved us. If you don't have it, like I said, maybe you're here exploring, maybe you're listening on Facebook. You have heard today that God has made a way. The gift sits ready for you to receive. God will secure it and will guard you. Your pain can find its purpose and you can experience the awe of a great God that even though you didn't deserve it, he loved you anyways and made a way for you to have true life. If today while I've preached to you or maybe while we've sang the truth of God's word to him, maybe God spoke to you today. Maybe the light inside your darkness turned on. Maybe the death, the spiritual death that you're living in is now being raised to life. If you're in this room tonight and you say, all right, I'm in. I want this salvation. What I'm gonna do, and as is our custom, I'm going to just simply pray to the Lord. And I'm gonna pause. And if you want to begin following Jesus, that's the time for you to repeat that to yourself. And then when we close, I'm gonna pray for the church. And then we're going to respond by praising God through singing. But if you're ready to follow Jesus tonight, pray this after me. Let's bow in prayer. God, I don't deserve your love. But yet you give it to me. I want salvation as a gracious gift from you. I want my salvation to be secure for nothing else in life is. I want purpose for my pain. I want to be in awe of your goodness, God. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I want to walk away from my sin. And I want to follow Jesus. Forgive me, Lord. Give me new life. I will follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to, to mark your connection card with your name and, and check that box that says you began following Jesus. 
We want to follow up with you. We want to welcome you to the family. And let me pray for our church. Lord, this text is reminding Christians that no matter what we go through, our salvation is secure. It's a gift. It gives us purpose in our pain. And it should make us be in awe of you. Help us, Lord, to be a people that lives in awe and gratefulness for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.